Welcome to the Grove Community Church Sermon Podcast. We're a faith community seeking to change lives, change our community, and change the world. And now to this week's message. We hope you enjoy it. One of my professors in seminary was Dr. Steve Siemens. And Dr. Steve Siemens was a brilliant man. And his theology class was great, not just because of the theology that he covered, but because for the first 15 minutes of every class, and we only had about an hour class, for the 15, first 15 minutes he always did a devotion, and it was really a sermon. And he would sit and he would, uh, um, he would expound on some thoughts that he had that were, that were very scholarly, but then very deep theologically. Um, and they were always moving. Like that was, to me, one of the, the best things about his class. I learned a lot under him. I learned a lot through the resources that he had us interact with. I learned a lot about the process that he taught us in theology, but I learned most from these devotions that he did at the beginning of his class. And in one of his classes that I took, he told a story about a person that was struggling a student that was struggling with a particular sin in their life, and he came to the professor and he said, Dr. Siemens, I, you know, I've, I've, I've been struggling with this for a while now, and I just can't get over it, and, and I don't know what to do with it, and I know it's baggage that I'm carrying with me, and, it's, and, and I'm here in seminary, and I'm preparing to be a pastor, and, I, and I, I want to do something about it, and I want to do something about it now. And Dr. Siemens said that as he was in this session with this with this person, he just felt, he just felt anger coming through. And Dr. Siemens would talk like this, and he said, and as I sat there and I felt the anger radi- radiating off of him, I'm like, have you ever been angry in your life, man? Do you know what anger is? Uh, I felt that God was telling me that, that it's anger that was the root of his real problem, and So we prayed about that and talked about that. So he goes on and he says that he addressed it and he said, he said, "Um, I sense that you're angry. And the young man said, well, yeah, I've got some anger that I deal with, but this is the real issue. And and Dr. Seaman said, I don't think it is the real issue. And I'll never forget this. He said, anger and bitterness is the trash that attracts the rats. And anger and bitterness comes from a place of pride. And I'm sitting in this class, you know, and I'm like, uh, we're supposed to be talking about like, you know, some deep theologian. I'm like, that is the deepest theology I've heard from you in, in, in this whole class. It was this idea that there is this spiritual battle going on and that this guy's pride had opened the door and had created bitterness and anger in him, which then attracted all this other stuff into his life, these other things that he was dealing with. Today we're going to look at a story or follow the continued story of David, and there is someone that experiences this very thing. It's, it's a man whose pride, his bitterness, and his anger utterly destroys him. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. 
But to understand chapter 18, you have to have a little bit of background. If you weren't here last week, we talked about David as he fleed because his son, Absalom, was going to come in and take over his throne in, in Jerusalem. And so there was going to be a battle. If David stayed, there was going to be a battle. It was going to be a battle of father versus son, and it was going to be David's mighty men and his following with Absalom and all the people that he had gathered around from the different tribes of Israel. So there was going to be a civil war. And David saw this, this wave, tidal wave of civil war coming, and he chose wisely. And he said, instead of battling, instead of, instead of injuring our own people and creating this chaos, instead of destroying the city, I'm going to leave. And he left, and he had a group of people that went with him. And in that group were his loyalists, the people that really loved David, that supported him. It was family members. It was, um, it was his royal entourage, you know, the, the people that took care of him and took care of the kingdom. It was, it was the people that were in charge of different parts of the kingdom. And it was his mighty men. He had fighters. We don't know how many, but he had fighters that went with him. And some of those were people that weren't even Israelites, that had connected themselves to David and said, no, we're going to fight with you because we believe in you. And so David and those people leave Jerusalem, and Absalom comes sweeping in. But as he left, we looked at it last week, that David encountered five, he had five encounters. We looked at the last two, and I just kind of glossed over the first three. Two of the three encounters he had come back to life in this story today. The first one was a trusted advisor, and that advisor said, I'm going to come with you. And David said, no, I want you, Hushai, that was the guy's name, Hushai, <laughs> I want you to stay, and I want you to thwart anything that Absalom does that could destroy him or the kingdom. So I want you to give him advice to protect himself and the kingdom. I want you to thwart his plans for evil. So Hushai did that. Then there was two priests that came and said, David, we're going to follow you. These, are, these were the, the top priests in his kingdom, and they said, we're going to go with you. And he said, no, the ark is staying in Jerusalem where it belongs, the ark of the covenant, and I want you to stay not only to protect that, but to be a spiritual element for my son and his kingdom when he comes in. And I want you to protect the people spiritually. So he left Hushai and these two priests back behind him. So Absalom decides that as David is leaving, he had one of David's ex-advisors come to him and say, you know, David's tired. They're fleeing. They're probably stuck at the Jordan River right now because that's a crossing that's going to take some effort. Why don't we go and slaughter them now? This would be the time. David is at his weakest. Let's go kill him. And Absalom goes, that's a great idea. Let's do it. But Hushai came in and said, time out. If you pursue David now, do you honestly think that David is going to put himself in a situation where you can easily get him? Remember, he is a great warrior. Don't forget that he's not just the king, but he is a warrior king. He has brilliantly overseen all sorts of battles and has destroyed everybody he's ever come across. Do you really want to go chasing after him? 
Do you really want to do that? Furthermore, if you go now, you're taking a small group of men to battle his mighty men. And let me tell you something. That's not a fair fight for you. His mighty men, David's mighty men, Hushai is saying this to Absalom, David's mighty men will slaughter you. So maybe you shouldn't go after him. Now Hushai was thwarting this this potential clash, but he was protecting David as well as really protecting Absalom. So Absalom says, you know what, you're right. My dad is a warrior king, and he is pretty brilliant, and he has destroyed lots of people, and I don't have everybody I need to take him on yet, so we're not going to pursue him. And the other advisor went home and hung himself. Literally. Crazy story, right? He was like, well, David didn't follow my advice. He's listening to this other guy, so I've lost all of my, my power. This was the guy who put Absalom up to trying to enter into Jerusalem in the first place. So this guy who was trying to destroy the kingdom and get as much power for himself as he could ends up, his advice isn't taken, and he goes home and he hangs himself and he kills himself. Crazy story. The Bible is full of them. So David flees, and he gets away. The two priests come and warn David. The two priests go and warn David, hey, this is what we've heard. Uh, you need to leave now because they're thinking about sending people after you. David flees, and he, and he hides out in this part of the kingdom, and David begins to plan. He knows that it's inevitable that his son is going to come after him, and that he's going to send an army. In the meanwhile, Absalom goes out and gathers lots of people. So he had a small army, now I'm going to gather lots of people from all around Israel, and we're going to pursue David and his mighty men, and we're going to strike them down and kill them, and then I will indeed be the king. That's where we come to 2 Samuel 18. A lot happens, and then this happens. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. We don't know if David had thousands of people. We don't know if the number was really 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000. It's more likely that he had numbers in the hundreds. The point here is that he was setting up a structure, a structure for, his, for this battle that's about to ensue. He goes into warrior mode and into general mode, and he begins to portion out these, these groups of, of men to fight. And he comes up with a plan, and David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, and one-third uh, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite, which was one of the people who decided to follow David instead of staying back. The king said to the men, I myself will go out with you, but they said, no, don't go. We don't want you to go. You shall not go out, for if we flee... They will not care about us, but if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. So, David, you're too important. They don't care about, they could kill thousands of us. They could kill all of us, but if they don't kill you, if Absalom doesn't have you killed, it doesn't matter. You're the real target. And because you're the real target, you stay back here at this city, and we're going to go out and fight for you. Now think about the difference between Absalom and David. Absalom's trying to gather people just to fight for him. He's trying to muster up people 
to get behind him. But David has people who, who want to fight for him, who are saying, no, you don't go out. We'll go out. We're your protection. Absalom, in his anger, in his pride, in his rage against his father, he becomes blinded. And he goes from being someone who would have been smarter than, than how he acted to someone who acts on impulse and foolish. And he starts to pursue fame. He starts to pr- pursue comfort. He starts to pursue power. All of those things come from this place of anger and bitterness and rage in him against his father. Because it, it's not enough for pride to stand alone. Pride always brings along a load. It brings with it garbage. Pride leads to anger and hate and bitterness and anger and hate and bitterness open the door for all sorts of issues. Absalom was so blinded by wanting to become king and wanting to embarrass his father that he didn't make good decisions. What I didn't tell you is that when Joab, I'm I'm sorry, when Absalom came into Jerusalem just to embarrass his father and just to show that he was powerful, he set up a tent on the rooftop of his father's palace. And he took out all of his father's concubines and raped them for everybody in Jerusalem to see. It's sick. I mean, how does someone get there, though? How does someone become that evil and that sick It started with his anger and his rage for his father. It started with this pride that would not let him see he had wrongdoing in his life. It started with him harboring bitterness and hate, and it led to utter destruction. I mean, think about how dehumanizing that is. And he does it for everybody to see as if he's proud of it. And it's with that kind of bitterness and anger that he pursues his father. And king says to them in verse 4, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out hundreds and by the hundreds and by the thousands. Now understand when you see this in military descriptions in the Old Testament, if it says hundreds and thousands, those were just, those were markers for units. It doesn't necessarily mean a literal thousand or a literal hundreds. It's a marker it's hard to explain. It has to do with Jewish pool of imagery, and it has to do with, uh, with um, kind of the way they talked about battles. We don't know the number. We just know that they marched out in these delineated groups, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now think about that. David says... No matter what happens in this battle, deal kindly with my son. Wait, the son who just marched into Jerusalem? The son who slaughtered people and then who raped people on, for everybody to see and then had him killed? That guy? The guy who's pursuing you now who wants to kill you? 
even in the midst of that, David says, please deal gently for my sake with Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel. Israel was this, was Absalom's group they called Israel because it was men from all over Israel. The men of Israel defeated there by the servants of David and they lost there, and the loss there was great on that day. This says 20,000 men. Again, we don't know if it was that large of a battle. It has to do with symbolism and we don't have time to get into it, but 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now, that's an interesting thing, right? So they're battling in, the, in this forest. They're battling in this part of the country. And it says that more people were killed by the forest than by David's men. Why do you think it says that? That's not rhetorical. Why would he add that? I mean, obviously something happened to these guys as they were trying to fight in the forest. But why would he say, why would he say that? Because the Lord was against them. The narrator wants you to understand that... God is actively fighting for David against Absalom. Now remember, David had been warned, all this bad stuff is going to happen to you because of your sin. All of this bad stuff is going to happen to you. But now David is in the process of being restored. We saw it at the end of last week. They stopped at the River Jordan, and we talked about the symbolic significance of of, uh, him, him taking rest by the Jordan and what all that meant. And how it was refreshing and he was renewed and how it was, the, it was the waters of life, that kind of thing. And so it was the process began last week of restoring David to who he was going to be and David to who God wanted him to be. And so now we see this next step. Now, now God is actively fighting for David again. Not against him, but for him. And the narrator wants us to see this. And then this is where it gets really interesting. You might have heard this story before. And Absalom, remember David's son, happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and, he, and the mule went under the thick branches of a tree of a great oak, and his head got caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Isn't that a crazy picture? So this guy is in the middle of the battle, and he's leading as the faux king. And he sees David's mighty men, and he's like, oh gosh, i got to get out of here. And he's riding that mule, and I can't imagine the mule's going very fast. And the mule goes under a tree, and he gets stuck in the tree. Now what's ironic about this? What did it say about this guy? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, he had five pounds of hair, right? It was flowing mane, like a lion. You know, this guy that has this mane of hair. Some people believe that, that, this is a, is a, uh, that he got caught by his hair. I don't think that that's what it's saying. There's no reason to think that. But what else did it say about him? He had long hair, beautiful hair, like gorgeous hair. I think I said it was like, what's the guy's name, Fabio? No. Fabio, yeah, yeah. So if there were romance novels back then, then Absalom would have been on the cover, right? Fabio-esque. But what else did it say about him? Not only did he have this gorgeous hair, what else? He was strong and handsome, like strikingly handsome. You looked upon his face, and it was as if looking at God himself. You know, it was that kind of thing. How ironic is it 
that his beauty didn't matter. And I think that's part of the story here, right? He gets caught on the head because his head was beautiful and his hair was beautiful. It was the whole thing. And if you just looked at that, you'd be like, oh, this guy's got it all, except he had it all stuck in a tree. I think this is God's way and the narrator's way of saying the outside doesn't really matter. Because what was inside of Absalom was this rotting, putrid hate and anger. It was bitterness. What was inside of him was this insatiable desire for more, for more revenge, for more money, for more power, for more embarrassment of his father, for more of everything. This guy was a mess, but he looked good. There's a lesson in there for you Instagrammers. His head was caught in an oak, and while the mule was under him, it went away. Verse 10, and a certain man saw it and told Joab, hey dude, Absalom's hanging by his head back there, stuck in a tree, and Joab said, why didn't you kill him? And he's like, eh, I was around and I heard David specifically say, don't kill the dude. And Joab says, well, I would have given you money if you killed him. I still might give you money if you go kill him. And the dude says, nope, not having it. David said, doesn't want this to happen, I'm not going to do it. But Joab didn't care. Verse 14. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you, talking to the guy who wouldn't go back and kill Absalom. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust him into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive, hanging in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. He said, stop. It's over. We've killed the one that is the reason for all of this. The Israelites who were fighting for Absalom were doing it because he was now the king, and they were just supposed to. They were out there being slaughtered, not because it was a good fight, not because God had told Israel to go to battle with itself, but purely on the egotistical whims of Absalom, on the hatred, on the bitterness. It was all about this one guy, and he destroyed everything around him. He destroyed people. He destroyed his father's house. He destroyed the nation. He brought it into civil war all over selfish reasons. He was Putin-esque. I didn't say Putin. I said Putin-esque. He blew the trumpet. Joab was dead. I mean, uh, Absalom was dead, and Joab said it's finished. And they took Absalom, and this is maybe the deepest show of disrespect that you could have for someone. And they threw him into a great pit in the forest, and they raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, every one to his own home. He was buried 
in a lowly, unmarked grave away from the family's burial site. He, in essence, was lost to history. He's under rubble in the middle of nowhere, and no one would ever celebrate Joab. I mean, I'm sorry, I keep saying that, Absalom again. No one would celebrate Absalom again. His desire, fueled by bitterness, led to complete destruction. And we don't have time to look at it, but when David gets the report, he weeps. This was the guy that was trying to to slaughter him. This is the guy who brought the country into civil war. This is the guy who had raped and murdered his concubines. This is the guy who had taken everything that David had built and brought it down to rubble in a matter of days. This is the guy who killed another brother. And yet, even then, David was sad and broken for this son. I think it shows you the heart of a man, David, who had done wrong, but had been broken to the point of confessing and repenting. You see, David could have been bitter and angry. He had the opportunity over and over again to be just like his son was, but he chose not to. Instead, he chose grace. On the other hand, you have Absalom, who was driven by his anger and his bitterness, who was driven by those things to become even worse than he was. And he ended up leading to his destruction and destruction of all these things that, that was good about Israel. And I think it's a lesson for us. I think it's a warning that when we let anger and bitterness, when we let our pride foster and hold in bitterness and anger, it festers and it becomes destructive. It's the trash that invites the rats. Absalom is a warning for us. Guys, we can't be a people like that. There's a lot to be angry about. I get it. There's a lot of divisiveness. I understand. But all too often, we respond in pride, not in grace. We respond with anger and bitterness. We lash out instead of love and grace. And if we let our pride get in the way and we let anger and bitterness fester, it will boil over and destroy everything around us. It will invite the rats to come and play in our lives. Many of you in here, you're not carrying a grudge with anybody. But some of you are. And I would venture to say at some point in your life, almost all of us will come to this point. What are you going to choose? David chose to love despite. Despite all that his son had done against him. Absalom chose bitterness and anger. What will you choose? Just remember, Absalom 
as beautiful as he was, his life ended in a lowly grave all by himself and no one knows where he is. No one cares. Don't be that guy or that gal. We hope you found this week's message meaningful and impactful. And as always, don't just hear it, but put it into practice. Until next time, have a good one.